Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. I'm Chris, and I'm here with Samuel. Samuel, how are you? I'm very good, Chris. It's good to see you and good to hear you. How are you? I am good. Uh, we are in the thick of all sorts of wonderful things happening, and it's a it's a full and fascinating moment. my real deep, deep joy to welcome uh, Doris Hunter, who's here with us today. Welcome. How are you? Hi, Doris. Hi. Thank you. And for those of you who don't know, Doris served the church many years ago as one interim minister, which is in between settled ministers and interims come in and help strengthen systems and help identify patterns and help help sort of prepare uh, and feed and nurture the systems and congregation and then and then leave usually. And then we had the good fortune of of getting Doris back. And so Doris and her beloved, another colleague, have been part of the church for a long time now. And so we'll hear some of this story uh, and more. But um, yeah, so Doris, why don't you just start? How did you end up finding Unitarian Universalism in the first place or wherever you want to start it? Let me start with, well, first of all, thanks for being invited. I really appreciate it. And I have notes here so I don't get waylaid. But I was born into a very liberal Methodist home in Royal Oak, Michigan. And my mother was a very fascinating mother. I really appreciated her because she was so open-minded. And she taught for a very brief time, uh, release time at the public schools in New Testament and Old Testament before the Supreme Court shut her up. Uh, The Supreme Court was a little bit more liberal in those days than it is now. But anyway, she really supported me when I began to ask these questions about Jesus and God and Mm. why Jesus had to die for our sins and so Mm. on. She supported me very much in finding a minister in Detroit who would listen to me and help me try to answer well, really, to ask the right questions. But and how very, how old yeah. were you? How old were you at this point when you started asking these questions? I think I was uh, about seven or eight. Nice. Uh, my cousin in uh, Grand Rapids wanted to save me, and she was afraid that she would go to heaven and I would go to hell because I wasn't. So, so I really wanted to. Uh, do with the right thing for her. And on one occasion, I was saved. And I went down to join this little group of people who were saved. And the first question was, do you know Jesus? Mm. And I thought to myself, good heavens, why am I down here if I didn't know <laughs> Jesus? <laughs> and I went back to my mother, and I was really kind of upset. And she said, Dora, she said, some people will understand religion with their hearts, mm. but you're going to have to understand it with your mind. Mm. 
Mm. And she said, that's a great gift. So mm. onward wow. I went. <laughs> and my next stage, if you want me to go on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, I wasn't saved in that sense. <laughs> uh, but I've tried to be saved ever since. Uh, but I went to Albion College, and Albion was a wonderful secular Methodist college. And there I met up with a professor who gave courses in philosophy of religion. Mm. And we talked about metaphysics and epistemology and just had wow. a wonderful time. And he noticed my interest and he said, Doris, why don't you go to Boston University School of Theology? Wow. And there you might be able to increase your wisdom and decide what your future would be. So I was fortunate to be able to go to Boston University School of Theology. And I joined a group of 90 men and six women. Wow. That's that, fantastic. Wow. Everybody yeah. said, that was great. You might get your MRS, too, along with your STP. Oh, no. <laughs> I thought that was a good idea. Especially oh, MRS, after I just got it. Okay. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. And uh, I thought that was a good idea, especially after I met Howard. And oh. we suddenly became good friends. And later, when I was getting my PhD and he had gotten his, uh, we got married. And we yeah. had two children. And... Uh, my philosophy professor there decided that I should do a PhD in this particular topic, which I really got involved in and, and loved very much. It was the interpretation of religious experience in the thought of F.R. Tennant, who's a British empiricist. Maybe you hmm. know, Sam. Do you remember? No, I haven't heard of him. Yeah, it was fascinating. All right. And uh, Baron von Hugo, who was a mystic realist. Mm. And I, came, I had a religious experience at the end of my PhD dissertation. Uh, and I really felt that if one was going to have to understand these questions, mm. one had to have a heart that was emotionally full, mm. but a mind that was keenly aware. Wow. And the combination between the heart and the mind was always a part of my uh, pathway. So no wonder I became a Unitarian, <laughs> Unitarian <laughs> Universalist, right? <laughs> well, my next step was to uh, teach part-time at uh, Boston University courses in, uh, I guess I guess you'd call it New Testament, Old Testament, and world religions. Mm. And I really began to get a great interest in that uh, particular dimension of religion, yeah. uh, what the Eastern religions had to say. Mm. So um, I spent part-time teaching there and also as counselor to women students. And that particular group has still continued, and I'm very proud of that, that we have been able to support it uh, oh, wow. at this point in our life. And did that continue to grow? So you said when you were there, you were one of six women in a field of however many, many, many men. Um, did that slowly grow uh, all of the women over the, your time there? Yes. Well, of course, now, you know, it's such a different scene. We yeah. have 60 women, 60 percent women and 40 percent men, men in the ministry. Yeah. What a change, huh? Yeah, it yeah. really has. It really has changed. 
Well, then I began to do some work at the College of Basic Studies, and there I met a Professor Jablonski. I was about to say, <laughs> my dad what? was there. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. That was your dad? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. Yeah, That's it was cool. really fun to get in. I enjoyed that. But then it came to the tenure crunch, and uh, I was not able to make that leap. And uh, I think for a good reason, one was that the College of Basic Studies was going to be closed down. So therefore, you know, all the professors should be sent to pasture, uh, at least some of them. But then my life changed, I would say, because I began to see that there had to be another dimension in my professional life. And um, when I began teaching at Bentley University in the Department of Philosophy, I did a lot of teaching in uh, Eastern religions. Nobody else in that department wanted to teach it, so I mm, did. Wow. And I really began to see the dimension of answering these questions that I had in a fuller and deeper way. But then what happened was that my husband at that time was teaching at Crane Theological School. That was at Tufts University, mm. and it was a universalist school for ministers. Oh, and wow. it closed in the, let's see, 1960. Five, I think, or 66. And then he continued on to be professor in the religion department at Tufts. And he's taught there for 40 years. Wow. But at the time he was teaching at uh, Crane Theological School, ministers would ask uh, Howard to preach at their churches. And even though he was an ordained Methodist minister, they felt he was safe because he was teaching at Crane. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I think he preached at, at least, I think he's got the Guinness Book of Records because yeah. he preached at more Universalist Unitarian churches as imaginable. Wow. But one of them happened to be Rockport. Oh. At that time in Rockport, they were looking for a minister. And meanwhile, wow. Howard had called me now and then to go and preach there because he thought I, he didn't need to do it every Sunday. Anyway, he was off doing these other things. So um, they liked the combination of Howard and uh, me coming mm. there and preaching on Sundays. And so unfortunately, they looked in their bylaws and they said, one of you is going to have to be a Unitarian Universalist minister. Wow. Um, so I thought, oh, well, I will. I'll become one. <laughs> I thought it was a good idea anyway. And yeah. I went before the, <laughs> it was so funny. I went before the fellowship committee. Yeah. And who did I meet there but all of Howard's former students? Nice. And they didn't dare. <laughs> Turn me down. <laughs> so I became a Unitarian Universalist minister, and I was ordained wow. there in the Rockport Church in 1975. Wow. You can imagine, 47 years ago, you know. Wow. So no wonder it's been a long path. But I loved it, you know. I loved doing the ministry, and not only the Sunday, but getting to know the people and yeah. visiting with them and so on. So I did that part-time 
of teaching at Bentley and doing the ministry there at Rockport. And that opened up a lot of new doors for me because I became uh, involved with the association. Yeah. Well, I was, I found I was on the Skinner Award Committee. I became uh, part of the UU board. You know, I spent, Eight horrible. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a privilege to serve. Yeah. <laughs> when there are about twenty-four of us, you know, we argue back and forth. But but it was yeah. wonderful getting to know those people, and getting to know Bill Schultz and Natalie Gabranson, yeah. who were very much involved. Then became very dear friends, mm-hmm. and then also um, at that time, I uh, became a. Involved in the James Luther Adams board. Uh, I worked with the Collegium, which became a, a way for ministers to meet and share uh, to what we would call academic efforts, you know, that we would put yeah. together and share. It was really wonderful. Mm. But the most interesting thing for me at that time was to become involved in the International Association for Religious Freedom. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. This international group, which began as a Unitarian, uh, uh, well, I guess it's a association, you know, they they were the ones who began IARF. And I think that's always good for us to remember. But anyway, I went to various, how are we doing that kind? Okay. You're doing great. Doing okay. Great. involved in their congresses, Mm. which took me to India, Europe, Japan, and of course, Canada, United States. And that opened up so many doors for me in terms of these deep questions I was asking about who I am and how I related to my uh, questions about life's meaning and how I was trying to express that in my ministry, you know, and my sermons and so on. And it just opened up so many possibilities. And um, the friends I made there, you know, Japanese friends, Indian friends, friends uh, from Romania, friends, you know, all over the world was just so enriching. Incredible, Sam and Chris. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, uh, yeah. I could never think think that particular way of uh, beginning the new path of my ministry. Mm. And then one of the most opening experiences for me at that was to uh, discover the possibility of studying the Japanese arts. Mm. And uh, one of the uh, groups that came from Japan was Omoto, Omoto Kyo. And, mm. and this was one of the new religions of Japan. So many of them started out in the late 1900s uh, because they just felt Buddhism had become very entrusted and in, encrusted, I should say, mm. with uh, just people who could afford it. And, and you know, they were in Shinto was okay, but it didn't really answer their emotional needs. Mm. So Omoto was one of those new religions. And what Omoto felt was that art is a mother of religion. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that 
incredibly beautiful. Yeah. And beautiful. they practice it. You know, one of their one of their beginner founders created these beautiful, beautiful Japanese tea bowls. I think he made about 300 of them, you know, and they were incredibly beautiful. But anyway, they offered a six-week course to poor little individuals like me to come over to Japan and become immersed in the Japanese way. You know, we had to take baths. We had to get our kimonos on correctly. At one time, my daughter had it the wrong way, you know, and they said, oh, you're going to die. You know, you have to put it this other way. <laughs> it was really a lot of fun we had. She went with me and it was really a wonderful experience wow. for both of us. Mm-hmm. But the most amazing one was to learn in a very elementary way, the tea ceremony. Mm. You know, it really was incredible. You know, we would go into this Japanese hut, which had the tea how ceremony uh, implements all laid out. And we would, you know, go seja, you know, to get on our hands and knees and bow and, you know, go through the whole rigmarole, which is yeah. incredibly beautiful. And I learned what they call the four principles of tea, which became the harmonizing base of my ministry. Oh my gosh. Um, let, me, let me read them to you because yes, I yes, to, yes. Yeah. Uh, the first was wa, W A, which means harmony. Uh-huh. Nothing should be out of place. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And that's incredible. And you know, for the Japanese, of course, they're very good at that. You know, they they don't have clutter, you know, as much as possible. But when you go into the tea house, of course, there's just the tatami mats you know, and the scroll and the flower arrangement and to the side, just this little area where the tea is boiling. You know, it's really beautiful. Mm. And you go in there and you sit and it's just absolutely quiet. You know, there is nothing to distract you whatsoever. And then you begin, you know, that wonderful ceremony in which you finally receive the tea bowl and you lift it up. Makes me want to cry. Oh, wow. <laughs> and you, sip, you sip that beautiful green tea, you know. It, yeah. you, it, it, you know, you can see that principle of a law in, in everything that you do, harmony. Mm, yeah. The second one is key, K E I, K, respect. That is, there is an appropriate decorum mm. that you appreciate your guests, you appreciate your friends, you appreciate the world, and you are one with it and mm. not trying to be against it in any way. And that is so much seen in the flower arrangement. I have one little here. But basically what you do, you just go out in nature and you find just a weed or something mm. that is beautiful and you bring it in. And there are only three things that you put into that vase. Yeah. And it becomes a harmony of respect that you pay to nature in its simplicity. Mm. And we had 
more fun, you know. We had to go out and find <laughs> some, some weeds and what you, we would call weeds, but they're very beautiful. And I remember one dear friend who was in my group. He tried so hard to get his arrangement ready, you know, and he was holding it up and he looked at me and he said, oh, I'm failing. And he started, <laughs> he started to cry. And oh. I, said, I said, no, look again. There's harmony there. There's beauty there. Mm-hmm. And we really had a, a wonderful moment. Yeah. So that's respect, you know, and so therefore you when you go into the tea ceremony and you're sitting there with all these people, you have a feeling of deep respect for everyone. You know, no one is more uh, worthy than somebody else. And one thing too, when you go into the tea and you perform it, you have to take off all your jewelry. You know, you can't have any. And one woman in our my group said, I have never taken off my rings before. And the team master says, you will. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but you will. <laughs> and off they came. You know, it's just absolutely. So when you hold your hand up, it's just absolutely bare. You know, no rings. Yeah. Then the third is uh, say, S-E-I, purity. That you feel within yourself a spiritual integrity. Mm. <laughs> And that comes from the simplicity of everything that you handle, everything that you feel, everything that is now void of your ego. You know, you're, you're oh, am I doing this right? Oh, no, you know, I, here I am, you know, and it, you, you somehow are able, holding that and drinking that tea to find that absolute harmony within yourself. And the fourth is Jakku, which is tranquility. Mm. You're savoring the transient moment. Mm. That's beautiful. It's this moment, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so incredible. And so those became the guiding principles for you in ministry. Absolutely, you know. I love that. I love that. Yeah, because that happened in the early 80s, you know, when I went with my daughter. And from then on, you know, I just felt that this had to be, well, you know, had to be. That's not the word to say. But this is going to be, you know, what I try to uh, say, not only in my sermon, but in my being, you know. Yeah. Especially with every person I meet, you know, how how beautiful they are within the concept of tea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so let's see. Did I finish up here? Um, So that became what I call the very essence of my interim ministry. You know, when I began that, I began that in 19, what's it, 92. Wow. 1992. Uh Yep. I went to Plymouth. And then I went to Newburyport. Wow. Then I went to Attleboro. Then I went to Sudbury. Then I went to Medford. Then I went to Boston, the first church in Boston. Then I went to Melrose. Then I went to Reading. Wow. Went to Waltham. And then I came here. What's it What's it like serving congregation after congregation after congregation like that? I, I, it's because I, I imagine that it must be very jarring. But how did you experience it? Uh, 
Not particularly when you go feeling that respect, you know, Yeah. because I mean, you find that they're all alike, you know, they all, yeah. well, of course, they are really, and every church, of course, has its own history in the wall mm-hmm. and there's no use trying to get rid of it. I, I've, mm-hmm. I discovered that, you know, they they all have a certain historical perspective, which is very conscious and many times unconscious to them. But what I tried to do in each situation was to say, come on, get over it. Let's move on, you know, because yeah, yeah. there's so much to do in this world. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, especially when they had difficulties with a former minister, you know, there was no use going over that and over that and over that unless it led somewhere. And in yeah. some churches it did. I think it did in, in, you know, in Belmont. I think that was helpful in Belmont. But it isn't always helpful, you know. You have to really work at that. And... Um, but, you know, I've, it was just so wonderful, you know, meeting all those people. <laughs> and uh, when I had my little farewell here, you know, <laughs> it was so wonderful seeing some of them come back and uh, remembering the experiences we had together. It was great. It was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I thought maybe you said, so what, what was your other question, Chris? What? Well, in the middle, in the midst of all of this and having served in so many places and having such a deep walk with Unitarian Universalism by now, is there anything that you particularly cherish, you particularly love about Unitarian Universalism? Um, Well, you know, being a minister, I have a sermon here. (laughs) 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 But at the very end, I think it really says what I felt about the ministry. Uh, Let me just read it to you. It says, uh, my ministry is a gift of the mind. And what does that mean? It's a gift that I share with you. I am finite. I am caught in this particular skull of finitude. No way can I give to you absolute truth. I am limited. My mind sees the world through these eyes of a certain time, space, cultural dimension, spiritual being, sexual being. This is a gift and its limitations. I am part of the human scene, but only a part. Therefore, I cannot declare war, murder, or hatred toward those who I disagree with. I am part of a cosmic whole whose wonder and mystery I can only sense and claim as my own experience. I celebrate this precious mind, my claim to humanity, my filter and interpreter of experience. Mm. Sounds like my PhD, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It did did come through in my ministry. Yes, I am wrong, and I'm wrong, but that's my strength, my weakness, to my my glory of being finite. Mm. So let me tell you. We are told by our mothers, our fathers, our friends, our lovers, children, that we are indeed children of the stars, that our moments are brief, but so incredibly tender, that our limitations are glorious, that we are brief 
and that we interpret the truth through common epistemological agreement. Mm. We are forever blessed, forever outside the walls of dogmatic truth. But that's the blessing. And that's the emotion. That's the charge of the mind that tells us. The heart of the mind, yes, knows the truth. Mm. We are, my dearest friend told me, Buddhist mushrooms. Have you ever pulled a mushroom from the soil? No resistance, no roots, no mm. clinging. Mm. Only a finite blossoming into the present. Wow. That's what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist. We are a finite blossoming into the present. Oh, that's moving. Wow. That's beautiful. I had, I had never heard your writing and your preaching. This is so beautiful. I love that image, too, of, of, the, of the mushrooms. And, the and mushroom, there's a beautiful... Yeah. Re, uh, resonance too with the seven-year-old you and your mother mm. your mother's very wise too saying you about about your questioning mind even then and it's yeah. even through all of that and you yeah. your, your, your phrase the heart of the mind i found very very yeah. relevant i i, yeah. I think about that yeah. yeah yeah i don't think we should ever say one over the other you know right exactly right. They're they're together in a wonderful way. You know, we have to have that emotion, don't we? Mm. But we also have to know what they where that emotion is leading us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it's telling us. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And our minds are so finite, you know, they're so limited. And uh it, it it's a blessing, you know, that it that they are. You know. So- I, I wonder, well, I, I keep thinking this in the back of my mind, but how long have you and Howard been married? 65 years. Wow. That's a lot of years. I'm realizing. <laughs> a lot of years. I'm realizing, Sam, we really, need. Yeah. It, it, my father was very much like, uh, like Howard. You know, he supported my mother in everything she wanted to do professionally. He was there 100%. Mm-hmm. And how that's are you? Know? Mm. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah. I'm realizing we should do a whole nother pod on people who've been married 50 uh, plus years, uh, maybe good, around yeah. Valentine's Day or something. But the other <laughs> yeah. piece was, um, you know, you've served and you've been so deeply connected to Unitarian Universalism now for a very long time. I wonder how you think we are the same as when you started, when you started serving churches, you know, in the eighties or when you started digging in, right. How do you think we're the same and how do you think we're different now? Uh, I think when I first went into the ministry, it was much more theological and intellectual. I think the sermons really reflected, uh, a philosophical background as well as a religious one. And Mm. I think the ministers were, um, you know, there's a lot of theology uh, that one had to uh, understand or at least try to understand. But I noticed that as the ministry became more filled with uh, women and men, you know, who are mm-hmm. more uh, psychological than they were theological. Yeah. That 
sermons became more a narrative theology, if you want to call it that, I know, but, but it was more related to their personal experiences and how it related to their ministry. Well, you wouldn't find that so much earlier in the ministry, you know, it was very difficult to know whether the minister was married or whether he had a lot of children or whether he went here or went there, you know, it was all very, what we might call more abstract. Right. And I, and I don't think it's just because we have more women in the ministry because yeah. they say, oh, well, you know, women are always emotional and blah, 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 blah. But I think it's because men and women both went to theological schools that gradually became less theological and philosophical in their uh, preparation and more psychological mm. and more concerned about how we relate uh, that way uh, to the ministry. So that that's what I've seen as the biggest change. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult for me because you know when I listen to a sermon <laughs> because I've come out of that old background of theology I look more for some kind of theological insight, you know, rather than this narrative about <laughs> how somebody might like his Thanksgiving meal or something, you know. <laughs> But right. that, that's wonderful, but it goes, you know, it's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, it's, that's a huge, that's a huge difference. And yeah. how do you think we're similar or the same? How do you think what? That the church is the similar now, or what do, what do you think we've carried forward? Carried for, oh, I, I think Unitarian churches are, at least they try in universalist churches, try to be open. You know, I think they've done a wonderful, uh, wonderful example of accepting gay and lesbians, you know, that that was really a difficult time. And there they had shelter and also ideas about nonviolence, you know, trying to stand for peace rather than war, you know, during the Vietnam War. I, I think it's the social justice has always been there. Mm. Uh, and that's a wonderful thing about our churches. And, you know, when I look at this little Rockport church here, and I think how, you know, it's down to about 90 members, but it's doing pretty well, you know. I think what a wonderful example it is of social justice, of mm. openness, you know, yeah. of uh, trying very hard to make religion relevant to the everyday life. You know, I, th I think we've always carried that. Don't you, Chris? Yes. Yeah. I think, I think it's, it's one of the more complicated things I think about our legacy is because you sort of always trying to respond to the moment and the times that we're in and always yeah. trying that we're kind of never, we never realize the goal of what we're building. Cause it's always the next thing, uh, you know, it's yeah. always, it's always all right. Then, then what's next and how can we keep going? And, yeah. um, but yeah, that certainly has been, I think one of the real legacies, I think of the draft cards being burned at the, you know, at the feet of the statue of William Ellery Channing and right yeah. outside the Arlington yeah. street church. And that is a direct line all the way to our, 
you know, you, the vote campaigns this, this year and, and whatever else is coming next. And our youth who push us even more, you know, who are youth who are like, why aren't we doing more and looking yeah. at everything that's going uh, on. Yeah. So. Environmental things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. But we've always liked struggle. Don't you think? I mean, we've always, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we there seems oh. there's still so much to struggle about. I mean, there's still so yeah. much to struggle for right. against. Yeah. Certainly is, definitely. That's why we um, need some basis of serenity. You know, yeah. I think that's what's so important for our churches now to give us that concept of tea, you know. Of yeah. Yeah. Finding within ourselves that home yeah. where we can come home to. Uh, well, and that ritual too. I mean, I think that there's just so much that's beautiful in what you were saying about the tea. Um, and, you know, worship is that too, you know, from the, from the very, from coming in and the way that all of the shared acts that we have together and the singing together and that is just over and over again. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I think we've been it's, good at that. I mean, yeah. whatever church I went to, you know, there was always that ritual of community. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry. It's been such a saga for you guys to get back into your place too. It's yeah. just mind boggling that you're still not home. I pass your building frequently and I think of you guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank but, you. Well, we're very fortunate being here in Rockport in this little Japanese house that we built yeah. in yeah, 30 years ago now. Mm, and wow. uh, to come home to this place is really, in a sense, coming home, you yeah. know, because of, of our Rockport Association. So we've been blessed that way. But yeah. there is a longing and uh, an emptiness because I don't know how many books have been destroyed, you know, how many, oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, photos yeah. have gone forever, you know. It's, yeah. You know, so I, we try not to think about that because everything. Yeah is impermanent. It's like the mushroom, you know? Right. Exactly. Well, and, and part of, you know, in addition to your home and all those beautiful things, you, you're also both just really missed by a lot of us and yeah. it'll be, it'll be wonderful to, you know, yeah. be able to have Thank you back. You and yeah. Um, well, again, I am deeply, deeply grateful for the, gift of your presence and your ministry and all of the firm foundation that you helped to lay and and mostly just cherish you as a person and as a colleague and i'm excited to get you guys back as soon as we can and um thanks so much for being here and for being on the pod it's wonderful to see you 